0: Ecclesiastes chapter 9 first thing I want to do is read this together Ecclesiastes 9 we'll, we'll read the first 12 verses and talk about those this morning so read with me I'm reading from the English Standard Version this morning but all this I laid to heart examining it all how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God whether it's love or hate man does not know both are before him It's the same for all, since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good and the evil, to the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and him who does not sacrifice. As the good one is, so is the sinner. And he who who swears is as he who shuns an oath. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that the same event happens to all. Their love and their hate and their envy have already perished, and forever they have no more share in all that is done under the sun. Go, eat your bread with joy, and drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. Let your garments always be white, let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love. All the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun, because that's your portion in life and your in your toil at which you toil under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all of your might. For there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to which you are going. Verse 11. Again, I saw that under the sun the race is not to the swift, Nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge, but time and chance happen to them all. For man does not know his time, like fish that are taken in an evil net, and like birds that are caught in a snare, so the children of man are snared at an evil time, when suddenly it falls upon them. Would you pray with me again this morning? God, we need you here. We have... We have no hope of understanding passages like this without your spirit. And Lord, in ways that we just maybe don't even know how to pray today. And so with all of our thoughts and even some of our groanings, Lord, we know that the spirit interprets and intercedes, and so we're thankful that we don't have to try to do this alone. Uh, be here with us in our hearts and our minds and in, in how we speak and how we love um, that you might be glorified in Christ's name. Amen. Let me ask you something. Have you ever experienced something in your life where you didn't really have a lot of say in it or it was kind of maybe even a rotten experience and the only response that you got was, well, that's life. Have you ever heard that before? I, probably so. I mean, with, with shrugged shoulders, you know, hands up kind of like this, and hardly any explanation, that's what we get told sometimes. And you know what? Sometimes, especially maybe as parents, that's all that's all we give sometimes. That's That's life. It might seem ironic that I bring that phrase up, because in most of the headings of your Bibles, over chapter 9, it says, Death comes to all. That's life. Death comes to all. Now, I realize, and I just want to stop and say for a moment this morning, as we've already discussed, there are, there are families in our church that are hurting right now. Families that, that we love dearly, who, for one reason or another, are watching family members' health decline. And it's hard. It's hard. Excuse me. I would be, I would be a fool to try to say something to lessen the pain that I know only God can ease. But I want you to know, if you're hurting, if you're struggling, just know how loved that you are. There are, just look around in this room, in the next room, in our community. There are church members who love you and don't want you to go through it alone. Don't think that you have to be the strong one uh, because... Your vulnerability really reminds us all that that Christ alone is strong. So, today we talk about the topic of death. And as much as it pains me to do so, I have to trust that God, in His His infinite wisdom, before before our family members ever got sick, before we ever decided to preach through Ecclesiastes, God ordained today. So, (laughs) saying all of that... With as much conviction to the to the biblical text and as much pastoral love that I can muster, we want to go through this chapter this morning together. Now look back just at the text that we read together. Something jumps out to me. A, qu- a question comes to my mind, and it's it's this. Does knowing that you're going to die one day impact how you live? Does knowing that it's coming, does it impact how we live? I think it should, and honestly, I think it does more than we like to admit, more than we even recognize at the moment. Last week, I said, I I used the phrase that Paul says, um, he says, we walk by faith and not by sight, right? In the big things in life and especially in, in, in death, we walk by faith and not by sight. Look back at Ecclesiastes 8 verse 7. No one knows what the future holds, brothers and sisters. No one knows what is coming. No one knows the day that they're going to breathe their last. And no one understands the works and the ways of God but God. And verse 17 of chapter 8 remind us, if even if a wise person says they understand, they don't. It's not true. Because we cannot understand as God does, we must choose to walk by faith and not by sight. That's a lot easier to say at church on a Sunday morning surrounded by friends, surrounded by loved ones, than it is when you're in the doctor's office getting bad news or when you're at work and you hear them talking about another round of layoffs. I realize that in the hard trenches of life, sometimes we're even tempted to think that our faith is meaningless. What does it matter? What does it matter if I follow the Lord? What if it matters if I just live for myself? It doesn't seem to matter in the end at all. Look at what Ecclesiastes, look at what Solomon is saying in chapter 9. He's, he's kind of feeling a similar thing here. It sounds almost as if he's slipped into this wrongly fatalistic outlook of life where nothing matters anymore and it, it, it doesn't matter what you do at all. Look at verses 2 and 3 doesn't matter if you're righteous or if you're wicked, if you're good or you're evil. The same things happen to everyone, and eventually death comes for us all. The same idea is repeated down in verses 11 and 12. Again, I saw that under the sun the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge. But time and chance happen to them all, for man does not know his time. Like fish that are taken in an evil net and like birds that are caught in a snare. So the children of man are snared at an evil time when suddenly it falls upon them. Side note here, the phrase time and chance in verse 11 I think is better understood time and happenings or time and circumstances rather than understanding chances like just the roll of a dice or the luck of the draw or something like that. Solomon says, no matter if you're swift, if you're strong, if you're wise, if you're intelligent, if you're knowledgeable, Life happens. Time and circumstances, they happen to everyone. And we shrug our shoulders and we say, that's life. Like fish caught in a net or birds caught in a snare, we don't know when our last day is going to be. Verse 12 says, man does not know his time. Recognizing that, it really can throw us for a loop though. It really can feel hopeless. And I think that it appears here that Solomon has started down this path. And if we're honest, We go down it too. We go down this same path at times too. I think this is what causes us to throw our hands up in the air as parents because we have a child whom we love dearly who just doesn't seem to care about the things of God. So we throw up our hands in frustration and maybe we start questioning God's plan. Or this is what causes us to be not excited about Bible reading anymore or about spending time in prayer or gathering with the church just... Because it feels like it doesn't do any good. It doesn't make a difference. You know, you go to church week in and week out, and yet your job is just as crummy the next day. Your paycheck is just as small. Your marriage is just as tense. And it all just can start to feel like a big waste of time. And if you've ever been there, please know you're not alone. You're not. This is a common experience, not to diminish what you're going through, but this is a common experience for everyone under the sun. We feel this way. We don't understand the whys, but we just with shrug shoulders say, that's life. And it is. But when you factor the concept of death into all of this, we can really start to question what the point of, lo- of it all is. So far, I realize in our time together, this has really been sliding downhill towards discouragement. And I don't want that for us this morning. Okay, I don't don't think Ecclesiastes was written to discourage us or to depress us. I think it was written to awaken us. And so that's where we want to be moving towards. And I know it's a little bit uncomfortable how Solomon writes this, but he's playing out the idea. If all there is is this cursed world that we're living in now, then everything really is meaningless. If this is it, none of it really matters. If there is no God and there is no life beyond the grave, then death is the ultimate equalizer. Everything stops there, and it cancels out all of our actions in this life, good or bad. Look back at verse 1 with me. But all this I laid to heart, examining it all, how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. Whether it's love or hate, man does not know. Both are before him. This verse sets the tone, I believe, for all of this chapter for everything else that we're talking about this morning. It says that their deeds are in the hands of God. Here's, I hope, our first infusion of encouragement this morning. If the deeds of our family members whose health is failing, if their deeds are in the hand of God, that's actually a pretty good place for them to be. There's no better place for them to be. I think about John chapter 10, verses 28 and 29. This is Jesus speaking. He says, I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who's given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. The hand of the father is a good place to be for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. All things work together for good. You recognize that verse. It's from Romans chapter eight. For those who are held within the Father's hands, even the things that don't look like good things to us are still designed and used by God for good. If your loved one has been born again, even though their physical bodies may be giving out, their eternal destiny is totally secure within the Father's hand. Perhaps more than anything, I think that's what Paul is getting at when he says we walk by faith and not by sight. We're in the hand of the Father. So the question is, when the outcome of a situation is unclear, what do we do? Do we hope or do we despair? Just before Romans 8.28 that I just quoted is Romans 8.24. And in that verse, it explains that if we can see or if we can control the outcome that we're concerned about, if we can control it with our own abilities, you know what? We're not really hoping anymore. We're not really trusting in God because he says, we hope for what we don't see. If you see it, you're not going to trust the Lord. And so we hope for what we don't see. And he goes on in verse 24 to say, we wait for it with patience. I did it. I said the P word, patience. I know Liz Taylor loves that word. Every week she asked me to pray patience for her. <laughs> That's not true. She says, Rod, don't you pray patience for me. We have to use that word because the Lord uses that word and it's always, it's always easier said than done. Always. But it's part of the Christian life. Patience, endurance, perseverance. And I, I think and believe that faith, hope, trust, patience, all of these ideas, biblical concepts, they undergird what Ecclesiastes 9 is, is getting at. Regardless of what life looks like and regardless of what life feels like to Solomon, And it feels like to me, and it feels like to you, who's still at the center of it all? God. God's hand is still over and is still moving. God is still at work in the world and certainly in the lives of those who have been made righteous by Jesus Christ. Here's something else big that we need to read from verse 1. This is kind of our second dose of encouragement this morning. And it doesn't sound like an encouragement right off the bat, but stick with me. Here it is. We can't use our current circumstances to gauge whether it's love or hate that we're receiving from God. Look at verse 1 again. But all this I laid to heart, examining it all, how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. Whether it's love or hate, man does not know. It's so easy to look around and to see the pain and to see the suffering and to see the difficulty and the sorrow and be tempted to believe that God has left, that he's gone or that he never existed at all, or that he stopped caring for us, or that he isn't true to his word. But brothers and sisters, the current season of life that we're in is not always a good indicator of how God really feels toward us. It doesn't take long to look at church history to understand that God's people, who were wholly dedicated to him, they suffered, oftentimes brutally and tragically for their faith. Just take the 12 disciples, for example. If we based God's apparent love or hate for them, based off of the course or outcome of their lives, you know what? We would be overwhelmingly convinced that God did not like them at all, wouldn't we? If all we looked at was what happened to them in this life, we would think that God maybe hated them. They were not wealthy. Most of them left their jobs and their families and their homes, and they had nothing but the clothes on their back, the food that Jesus was going to provide to eat. They were not wealthy. Many of them were constantly sick afflicted persecuted imprisoned and all but one was brutally murdered for their faith and even the one that wasn't murdered for their faith endured incredible hardships that's all that we looked at we would come to a false conclusion about how god loved or hated his disciples godliness is not a guarantee of health And it's not a guarantee of prosperity. So we can't look at our current circumstances to determine if God is for us or if God is against us. We know that God is for us. Romans 8.31 tells us that. He's not against us. He's for us. And it goes on to say that he's for us regardless of external circumstances. And he lists some in Romans 8. Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, destitution, danger, or death. The sword. Regardless of all of those external things happening, we still know that God is for us. Your current condition of, in life is not usually the best test for God's feelings about you. Instead, let me encourage you to look to Jesus. Look to Christ. We shouldn't measure God's love by what happens in this life. We should measure God's love by what Jesus did at the cross. In chapter nine of Ecclesiastes, Solomon pounds home this truth that death comes for us all it's coming the reason for it he says in verse three just glance down there with me it's because our hearts are full of evil even the most beloved and saintly person that you know has broken god's moral law repeatedly over and over this hopefully isn't seen as an attack on them or their legacy or anything like that just in his an admittance that they're humans like the rest of us they're people. But it also reaffirms what Ecclesiastes 7.20 has already said. Surely there's not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. It also agrees with what Jeremiah 17.9 says. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Sin brought death in the garden. And in the same way, our sin brings the curse of death upon us too. You know the verse, part of Romans Road, Romans 6.23. It starts off and it says that the wages of sin is death. So because I sin, death is coming for me. Because you sin, death is coming for you too. And we shouldn't think that our enthusiastic efforts of trying to be good are going to save us from this outcome. Look at verse 2 again. Just glance through that. All of these things are things that are actually important to God. Being righteous, doing good, being clean, offering sacrifices, making good oaths. All of these things are right to God. He's given instruction to the Israelites in the Old Testament about how to do these things correctly. They're important to him. But here we've got an Israelite. We've got Solomon. He's saying, if all there is to this life is what's here and now, then even the things that make him a good Jew mean nothing in the end. And we could replace good Christian with good Jew and it'd be the same for us. If this life is all there is, being a good person or a good Christian means nothing in the end. Because death equalizes it all. It's tempting to think that because we all end up the same way, that living a godly life doesn't matter. Look at verse 3, the end of it. It says, And after that, after all of these things that don't work, they go to the dead. It's over. It's death. And it's tempting to think that the grave is the end of, of every, of existence of everything. Do you know what? That's a lie of Satan. That's a lie of the devil that convinces people that there is no life after death. If we can be persuaded that this life is all there is, then what lasting motivation is there for humility or for forgiveness or justice or sacrificial love? If this life is all there is, the logical course of action is to not worry about all of that stuff, to not love my neighbor above myself, but to get ahead, to get as much pleasure, as much enjoyment as we can on our time on earth. To caution this train of thought, if we believe that God does not exist and there's nothing after this life, there's a problem here, and it's this, if there is no God, there's no such thing as good and evil. There's no such thing as right or wrong. Right and wrong would just be this social construct that people have made to try and control us if there's no God. Evil can only be identified if there is some absolute moral standard that is being compared to. So if there's no God, then the idea of good and evil, of justice or injustice, these things are just cruel mirages that aren't really true. And I think this is what verse 4 is getting at. In his poetic way, Solomon, he starts talking about dogs and lions, and he says that life is to be preferred than death. Now, this verse is sort of confusing to us because we have a, a different view of man's best friend than Solomon did. Okay, how many of you guys own a dog? It could be indoor, it could be outdoor. I'd say a lot of our families, a lot of us own dogs. Here's another question. That may be a little bit more embarrassing to raise your hand for how many of you own clothing for your dog In solomon's time in old testament israel dogs were not companions. They were dirty. They were sneaky They were scavengers They were hardly ever pets and we still see this in other parts of the world even today We have a much different view of dogs than solomon did uh they roamed the streets eating scraps uh Jesus tells a story about the beggar in Luke 16 and dogs were there licking his sores dogs do gross stuff Got a dog? You understand I mean even the domesticated dogs that we have still do gross stuff but in contrast strong noble courageous people are always personified as lions in scripture and in other writings and so Solomon is is saying here he's saying that if life is truly all there is. If this life is all that there is, then a sneaky, opportunistic person who lives is to be preferred to a brave and noble person who dies. That's still a little bit confusing. He says a living dog is better than a dead lion. Let me help us understand this. If there's nothing beyond death and there is no God, then it's better to look out for number one and save your own skin instead of risking it in order to save someone else and end up dead. If this life is all there is and there is no God, it's better to be morally dirty and alive than noble and righteous and dead. Now, why would Solomon say this? I mean, he's he's continuing on this trail of if this is all there is, then this is the outcome. That's his mode of thinking still. And he says this because in verses 5 and 6, death wipes everything out. It wipes out wisdom, it wipes out memories, it wipes out feelings, good and bad, envy is mentioned there. It wipes out possessions, it wipes out love, it wipes out relationships. If this life is all there is, death ends it all. All those things leave us when we breathe our last. But the living still have an opportunity to come to grips with the reality of death and maybe then do something about it. And that's why he says it's to be preferred rather than death. Now here, I hope, is our third helping of encouragement this morning. If you or your loved one are still breathing, then God's patience is waiting and hope remains. Unfortunately, instead of coming to grips with the reality of death, what do we do? Lots of people waste their time filling up their lives with distractions. It's hard to admit, but unless someone forces us to think about death, we will not do it we we will not do it. We'll do everything we can to ignore it. And if we can't ignore it, then we're going to, by any means possible, get it out of our heads, push it out of our minds. As those who are still living, every day is a gift of God, a gift that gives us an opportunity to repent of our sins, gives us an opportunity to enjoy life differently in light of our approaching deaths. But the realization of death causes a wide variety of responses. It can cause people to live like scoundrels, looking out for number one above anyone else. For others, it can cause people to despair and to lead them to believe that every hardship in their life is a punishment from God. Or the reality of death can wake us up to enjoy every moment because we never know which one's going to be our last. This is an interesting statement that I read this week. Death can make life tragically meaningless or strikingly meaningful. Ecclesiastes 7, verse 2, Jason preached on this while we were still outside. Solomon says, It's better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting, for this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. He's saying that it's actually better to go to a funeral and be confronted with the reality of death than to go to a party where that reality is avoided with every distraction possible. To be blunt here, Facing the truth about death actually has a way of helping us enjoy life more. And I think we could see that pretty clearly if you think back to 9-11. 9-11, most of us could be with our family. And when we were, we hugged them tighter, didn't we? We hugged them a little bit longer because we saw the devastation. We saw the loss of life. And for at least a little while, a lot of people lived differently. Churches were becoming full People were asking questions about what's after this life. And at least for a moment, when faced with the reality of death, people live differently. It still happens when we face death today. But in case there's any confusion about what it means to enjoy life, Solomon explains it here with six everyday examples in verses 7 through 10. And we're going to go through these quickly. The first thing he says at the beginning of verse 7, he says, Eat your bread with joy. We're talking about enjoying life now. Eat your bread with joy. Now there are certainly times when eating another meal almost just feels like a chore. Like, oh man, I gotta make food for my kids again. It's just, it just feels like this chore. Or maybe you've, you've fasted before or maybe unintentionally gone without food for a long time, but you, there are other times when you know how much joy you can get out of eating food. I actually think that it is a, an, an incredible blessing of God, the kind of diversity that we have in what we eat and what sustains us. It's more than that. Mealtime can be more than just about survival. I think it is. Most of the time when we see meals happen in scripture, they happen with uh, believers or family gathered around. It was more than just surviving. It's okay, and it's right to enjoy food. Now, we have to be careful and guard against gluttony because that is something that he the Bible says is not good temperance here, but good. Eat your bread with joy. And along with that in verse seven, he says, drink your wine with a merry heart. Now the Bible makes a clear distinction when it comes to drinking alcohol. There is a right way to enjoy it. And there is an obvious way of abusing it. Scripture condemns being intoxicated, but in several places gives instructions for its rightful use. And this is not a sermon about alcohol, but let me encourage us to be people of the word, and to handle this topic with grace toward one another using scripture as our starting point. Here in our text, though, we're beginning to see that Solomon has something in mind with all of these things of enjoying life. I think he's got a celebration in mind. At important events in ancient Israel, guess what they drank? Wine. This happened at the wedding feast when Jesus was very young, first recorded miracle. He turned the water into wine. When there was a celebration, they brought out the best of it. It was a joyous time, and that's, I think, what Solomon is referring to. He's saying, in the moments where you're together, in the the festive moments, enjoy this. Enjoy food. Enjoy drink. It's part of enjoying life. And I think the further celebration aspect comes into play when we keep going in verse 8, at the beginning there. It says, let your garments always be white. Now, in the Middle East, you're going to see a lot of people wearing white and light-colored clothes because it's hot. A lot of sun, a lot of heat, and that keeps you cooler. He says, let your garments always be white. But white clothes, pure white, they were kind of set aside for celebrations, weddings, births maybe. Pure white signified something particular. So I think what Solomon is kind of getting at in all of this is he's saying, hey, get up, get dressed in your nice clothes and go have a good time and go eat and go drink and be merry. And I think this goes along with the next thing in verse 8. Let not oil be lacking for your head. Today, actually yesterday, my family did a lot of swimming, celebrated the 4th of July. So we're lathering up with sunscreen to protect our skin. They didn't have sunscreen in Bible times. So guess what they used? Oil. Oil was a, was a kind of sunscreen or a kind of moisturizer after sun exposure. But oil wasn't cheap. And we see this played out in the story of the lady who broke the jar of perfume, the oil on Jesus' feet. It wasn't cheap. It was reserved for important occasions. And so Solomon is, is saying, life itself is a special occasion. Life itself is meaningful. And then in verse 9, he says, Enjoy life with the wife whom you love. Wives, I think you can read this, enjoy life with the husband whom you love. Enjoy companionship. Enjoy physical intimacy. Enjoy the children that God gives you. Enjoy your time together. And you know what? Enjoy God together. Husbands and wives, we understand how to be husbands and wives better based on scriptures from 1 Corinthians 7, Ephesians chapter 5. So reread those with your spouse and be reminded of how to enjoy life better together. Verse 10, he says, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. Likewise, from verse 9, he says, that is your portion in life and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. Do everything, is what he's saying, do everything with all of your effort because that shines a brighter light on Christ than being lazy. If your boss, who knows you're a Christian, sees you slacking off and being lazy, what will they then think about your faith in God? It speaks to it. It says something about it. And so instead of half-hearted work, we're supposed to give it all. We're supposed to do it with all of our might. Enjoy your work. Enjoy your food. Enjoy what you drink. Enjoy celebrating. Especially enjoy your spouse. I appreciate a Scottish pastor named David Gibson says this. The logic here is that death loosens my grip on God's gifts and frees me to see his world for what it is. The lavish endowment to wayward creatures of abundant good gifts that we do not deserve. Death frees me to enjoy things for what they are rather than what I want them to be. Creation is there to be enjoyed, not plundered for my gain or manipulated for my fame. Food and drink love and sex, work and beauty, these things become even more enjoyable when we paint them into our lives knowing one day they will pass. Try and hold on to them or worship them and we find that we are chasing the wind with only fistfuls of mist to show for all of our efforts. So this chapter, chapter 9, and really I think all of Ecclesiastes reveals the meaninglessness and fleeting nature of life here under the sun for a reason. And the reason is this, to cause us to look for something beyond this life. To cause us to look and yearn for something beyond the grave. We try to make sense of the hard things of life. We wrestle with the idea that there actually is something beyond the grave and that what happens in this life has meaning. We're trying to make sense of all the events of our life and find meaning there. God, how does this make sense at all? But God has put eternity into our hearts. So it's natural to wrestle with these things. Danny Aiken in his commentary on Ecclesiastes says this, what Ecclesiastes aches for, the New Testament presents to us. I love that because where is it pointing us to? Christ. It's encouraging us to exalt Christ here, even in Ecclesiastes. It's true. Death has come into the world through one man, Adam. But that same verse in Romans chapter 5 tells us that life also came into the world through one man, through Christ. We die because we inherited a sin nature from Adam and because we participate in that sin Which is why every one of us needs not just to be fixed or adjusted. We have to be rescued. We are drowning. And if we are not rescued, we will drown in our sin. We don't just need to be fixed. We need to be rescued. The wages of sin is death. We talked about this. We we quoted this earlier. And we earn death. We earn it. It's not just, oh man, this got put on me. I earn it because of my own attitudes my own actions, my own behavior. We earn death, every one of us do. But the rest of Romans 6.23 says the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Jesus beat sin by living a perfect life and he beat death by rising from the grave. And the promise for all those who believe is that they're going to be raised to new life as well. But this isn't just a future coming sort of resurrection. This is a right now at the moment of salvation resurrection because scripture teaches that we have been raised from death into life now we've been raised from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light now and all those who trust in jesus christ alone for salvation are saved from a meaningless existence on this earth our lives have purpose and were freed to use God's good gifts as a means of enjoying this life and as a means of glorifying him instead of just piling them up as distractions to avoid thinking about death. But Christ didn't only die to forgive sin, he died and rose again to conform his followers into his image, so that they would live according to God's design and not their own. If God has saved you, God has saved you to follow him and to be more like him, not to follow the world and be more like it. Those who are in Christ, we can live life to the fullest. And this is what Solomon is getting at here. In the face of the oncoming death that is coming for us all, we can live life to the fullest because of Christ. We can eat, drink, love, work all in redeemed ways and do everything with all of our might for the glory of God. Is that you today? Are you living life to the fullest because of Christ in you? Or maybe you're using the current season of your life as a gauge of whether God is happy with you or not. Or whether he's real or not. Because we say, well, if God is really real, how could fill in the blank happen? Remember, we shouldn't measure God's love by what happens to us in this life. We measure it by what Jesus did at the cross. Are you fighting today to control your life? I can assure you it's not going to turn out the way that you think it will if you're in control. But left in the Father's hand, as we know, it's the most secure place, left in the Father's hand, He knows how to turn what the enemy means for evil into our good and for the glory of God the Father. Let's pray together. Lord, I know that there are, there are hearts in this church this morning that are struggling. They are asking why they may be shrugging their shoulders and just saying, oh, well, that's life and becoming more and more discouraged by the day. I pray, Lord, that your word and your spirit would lift them from that today. Speak truth and encouragement into their hearts and into their lives. Yeah, death comes for us all because we all have a hand in it. We all deserve it. And yet Christ came to rescue sinners in the midst of their sin. And so I pray, Lord, that those who have not turned to you in repentance and faith would today. That they would see their own hand in the problem and they would cry out not to just be fixed, but to be made new. And Lord, for those who are struggling, would I pray that they would not look at their current circumstances in life, but they would look at the cross and they would see your love poured out through the hands and feet of Christ and that they would be reminded No matter what happens to us in this life, you are for us and you will not let us go. Nothing can remove us from the hands of Christ and the hands of the Father. So we pray, even though we've talked about a lot of hard and difficult, sometimes depressing things from chapter 9 this morning, Lord, I pray that we would be awakened to view life as a gift to treat others as we ought to because we know that there is more that is coming after we die. This is not the end. To recognize that Christ is all and to him be all the glory and that we ought to live that way. Lord, we thank you for your word. Thank you for our time together. I pray as we now dismiss and go our separate ways for the day, Lord, I pray that we would hug our families tight because we don't know when the last day that we have here is. And that you'd help us to love better in light of our coming deaths.